www.ncba.net. This is The Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. God has admonished us to study his word. Uh, We are all beloved of God if we know Christ is our savior, but we're not all approved of God in our ability to be used of God as his instrument partially, not totally, but partially is in direct correlation to our being able to disseminate God's word because that's the tool the spirit of God uses to bring conversion and it's the tool that he uses to grow his people. If you're joining us for the first time, this is the Bible line. And for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions. Uh, again, you can reach us locally at 843-525-1859, 843-525-1859. Or we have a toll-free number that you are free to use. And that number is 877-WAGP980. Uh, We live stream 24 seven around the world and we have people who also uh, email us here directly into the studio and that's TBL, the TBL for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. And if you uh, send us a email, it will come right here in front of us on the screen. So Rick, as always, it's good to be here. It is indeed, Pastor. And uh, we had a call we weren't able to get to last week. So let's start with that one. Okay. Uh, the caller wants to know that, uh, first of all, they know that we're now under grace, not under law, but uh, would like to know, how do we separate between the law, for example, the Ten Commandments, and when we are under grace? Well, it's a good question. It's a complex question. So let me see if I can attack it. Um, In the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul uh, deals with really our relationship to the law because there were some Judaizers who came into the church who added to the gospel. It was not salvation by grace alone through faith alone, but they added circumcision as a necessary requirement. And of course, Paul's argument is uh, in reference to these Christians is that if uh, you are convinced because these were believers and he didn't really question their salvation. But what the problem was, was the implications for their sanctification. They understood that you're saved by grace through faith. But if you're sanctified by works and not by grace, then it becomes a huge issue. And so in the end of chapter two, he says that very clearly that if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. So righteousness doesn't come through the law. So what was the function? Well, among other things in Galatians three and verse 23, he said, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law became our tutor our schoolmaster, it's the uh, word pedagogia in Greek. We get our word pedagogy from it. Uh, it was our tutor to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. 
So when you come to the Old Testament law, you know, what does that mean? What are the implications? Uh, How do we disseminate what is binding today on the Christian and what's not? And of course, one of the functions of the law was to really show our inadequacy. When you looked into the law, Romans 7, 7 tells us that it reveals your sin. It showed you that you had a problem. When I look into the mirror, I see my face is dirty. When I look into the mirror of God's word, I see my soul is dirty and that I need a savior. So when you come to God's Old Testament law, some of it is civil law that related to the theocracy of Israel. Some of it is the ceremonial law that had outward uh, manifestations that distinguished Israel as a nation, but also taught them principles because again, they were under a tutor. They were under a protector to lead them ultimately to the Messiah. And then there was part of God's moral law that is never changing. Um, So let me see if I can illustrate. I'm going to flip here to the book of Leviticus and the 18th chapter. And so in the 18th chapter, for instance, you have a number of different uh, dictates that God gives in reference to what his people should or shouldn't do. you know, some of it is binding. Some of it is not necessarily binding like uh, in Leviticus nineteen nineteen. Let me go there first. It says you are to keep my statutes. You shall not breed together two kinds of your cattle. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor wear a garment upon you of two kinds of material mixed together. Okay. Well, do we keep that? Well, no, I don't think so. I think that's part of the ceremonial law. And so God distinguished Israel and showed that there were certain things that shouldn't be mixed and certain things that shouldn't be done together. And it's was part of God's ceremonial law to distinguish Israel from the pagans of the world. Uh, For instance, uh, another example of this would be in Deuteronomy seven, verse three, it says, Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Now, some have used this to prohibit interracial marriage, but that's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage was was that Israel is distinct and there were certain things you didn't mix and you didn't mix a believer with an unbeliever. So as you study the Old Testament, you want to ask, number one, is it part of God's ceremonial law? that was binding for that age only that was ultimately fulfilled in Christ, or is it part of God's moral law? And one of the ways to do that is you look at uh, the lens, you look at the old Testament law through the lens of the new Testament. So the passage I just read, for instance, from Deuteronomy seven, verse three about the Jews not intermarrying. And the reason was because they were not to marry the pagans in the land, the idolaters. Now, certainly you have people like Joseph who marries an Egyptian You have Moses who marries a non-Jew yet nonetheless, (laughs) very clearly they were marrying believers. So the timeless principle is that a believer should not marry an unbeliever. And that's highlighted in the new Testament in the book of second Corinthians, the sixth chapter. Some things aren't as easy to discern. For instance, I I mentioned uh, chapter 18. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live according to them. 
I am the Lord your God. You shall not keep, you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live. If he does them, I am the Lord. So then he goes and he begins to unfold some of the um, people that you can marry and you can't marry. For instance, he says, none of you shall approach any blood relative of his to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father. That is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You are not to uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. So for instance, um, it was a wicked thing for a man to sleep with his stepmother. Is that just part of the Old Testament law or is that part of God's moral eternal law? Well, there's really no debate. And again, because God has written his laws within our hearts and he's put them within us as recipients of a new covenant. On the one hand, we don't need a tutor, uh, but it's really pretty plain. Um, in fact, in the new Testament in first Corinthians five, it tells us that, um, you know, it was a wicked thing in the Corinthian church because it was well known. It was broadcast. Akuo is a Greek word. It was known among them, heard among them that there was a church member who actually had his father's wife, his stepmother. And Paul said that was a wicked thing. Um, now the reason I bring up this example, okay, I think of a seminary president who I will leave unnamed and he's now, you know, very elderly, but when his wife died, he ended up marrying, uh, his wife's sister. And his argument was, well, we're not under law, we're under grace. And so that has no application for us today. Well, I, I think it does. Um, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is your father's blood relative. You shall not uncover. Uh, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is your mother's blood relative. Uh, so you know that that's pretty straightforward. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is your mother's blood relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. You shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. So he married his brother's wife. His brother died. Uh, they, they had married sisters. They were twins. And uh, was that right? I would say no. Uh, in fact, God goes on to say it is a lewdness. It is a lewdness. Listen, whenever God says something is a lewdness or an abomination, very clearly it is uh, binding, I can promise you. So there are some things you, you don't necessarily find in the New Testament. For instance, he will uh, say, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. That's clearly in the New Testament. Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, homosexuality, it's a wicked sin. Also, you shall not have intercourse with an animal to be defiled by it. Okay, that's not in the New Testament. God calls it a perversion. It is still immoral. It is still part of God's eternal law. So when you approach the Old Testament, you want to ask, is this part of God's moral law or is this part of God's eternal law? Now, specifically, you reference the Ten Commandments. Uh, some people would say, well, the Ten Commandments really are not binding today, or at least uh, one of them is not. And they will argue that nine out of the 10 commandments are restated in the new Testament. And one is not namely the fourth commandment. You shall keep the Sabbath day holy. 
Well, is that part of God's moral eternal law or is that part of God's ceremonial law? Did that apply just to Israel? Does that apply to God's people in general? Well, again, um, there are certain laws of God that are binding on the church today. Paul, for instance, quotes the fifth commandment in the book of Ephesians, the sixth chapter, but he changes the application of that commandment. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. This is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. So it's the first commandment in the Decalogue that has a promise attached to it, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Now, Paul changes the wording. If you go back and you, of course, the Ten Commandments are found in two critical passages, Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. In Deuteronomy 5, you have the extended promise that is given here to the fifth commandment. And if you go back and read Deuteronomy chapter five, it doesn't say that it may be that you may live long on the earth, but you may live long in the land. In what land? In the land of Israel. But now because God has an international community of Jew and Gentile made one in Christ, he extends the application, not just to the land of Israel, but on the earth, wherever God's people may live, whether they live in South Carolina or whether they live in Jerusalem. It's the same principle. So while I think all 10 of the 10 commandments are binding, they're etched in stone. I do think that the application may have changed. And so in reference to the fourth commandment, God specifically says that you shall uh, keep the Sabbath day holy. What's the Sabbath? The Sabbath is the seventh day, Saturday. Now, there are Christians, Seventh-day Adventists, Seventh-day Baptists, and others who argue that we should still worship on Saturday. But under the New Covenant, because God had made us into one new man, speaking of the church, where there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, we are all one in Christ Jesus, God changed the application of the day on which we will worship to the first day of the week, what we refer to as the Lord's Day. And so throughout the New Testament, you find the church not meeting on the seventh day, but on the first day of the week, God was now distinguishing his people. But the principle of keeping one day and seven together corporately didn't change. Now, some of the Sabbath laws changed that were unique to Israel. You know, if you pick up a bundle of sticks on the Sabbath, you're in big trouble. Uh, That doesn't apply today. But the principle of gathering with the people of God on the first day is a binding principle. Now, often the church didn't meet at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, but they met at night because remember uh, about 600 million people were in some form of slavery. And so you had this huge population of slaves in the first century. And so many of them, the only opportunity they had to meet was on the evening time. And so um, God doesn't regulate it well, it's got to be in the morning or whatever, but the principle of having one day in seven in which we gather corporately is still binding on the church today. So I'm not prepared to say that it has no application. I think that would be a, a big mistake. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And Paul in the book of Romans, let me just turn there for a second. He says in Romans eight, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death for what the law could not do weak as it was through the flesh. God did the the law couldn't save you because of the weakness of our fallen sinful nature. If you want to be justified by obedience to the law, then you better keep every single law because 
if you break just one, you have guilt and you have condemnation. That's why James will say for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. So what the law could not do, it couldn't save you weak as it was through the flesh. God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh. Why? In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who did not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So God's moral law is still binding. We need to obey it. We need to follow it. There are certainly some challenges that we have at times, whether something applies today or not. Uh, but when you go back and you study them carefully and you read it through the lens of the New Testament, in most cases it becomes really pretty clear. All right. I think we have a caller that's waiting. So let's, uh, uh, I thought I saw their line too. Okay. Nope. Well, let's go on then. All right. Very good. 843-525-1859. If you have any questions on today's Bible line. And uh, we did have another uh, question that was uh, left from last week. Uh, Danny from Rinkin says, um, they were wondering why many of today's Christian churches don't acknowledge the feasts of Israel. Is it acceptable to celebrate Hanukkah or Passover, etc.? Danny continues, our family has been exposed to Hebraic fellowships before and is seeking guidance as to whether or not it would be a sin against God to acknowledge the feast as a way to worship him and celebrate Christ's sacrifice and second coming. I know Jesus celebrated the feast and that he didn't come to abolish the law just to fulfill it, but what is meant when he says that? Thank you so much. Well, again, a good question. Um, the, re- the religious feasts, the Mohadim, as they're called in Hebrew, the, this was, it comes into English as feast. It means literally the appointed times. And so God in Leviticus chapter 23 gave certain appointed times, certain feasts that the people of God were to recognize and observe. Uh, There were uh, four spring feasts and three fall feasts. Uh, In the spring of the year, there was Passover, which was indeed, uh, you know, most of us are familiar at least with Passover, where they would remember what God did as he delivered them supernaturally out of the land of Egypt through the blood of a lamb, a spotless lamb that was placed on the doorpost and the lentil. There was the feast of unleavened bread that followed immediately after Passover. And then there was uh, first fruits that followed after that. So you would have Passover, uh, which most would argue took place on a Sunday, uh, on a Friday uh, when Jesus died. Uh, the, the Saturday is the feast of first fruits. It's always the, uh, excuse me, the feast of unleavened bread follows the day after Passover and then the feast of first fruits. It's not by accident that Jesus dies on Passover. He's buried on the day of unleavened bread and he rises from the dead on the first day of first fruits. Uh, that's followed by the feast of weeks where for um, a number of days, 49 there were certain dictates that God had spelled out for his people, Israel in the 50th day, a day of celebration was Pentecost. So Pentecost is not really an old Testament. I mean, a new Testament phenomena it goes back to the old Testament. When you study the four fall feasts, they are all fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. Uh, the four spring feasts. When you come to the fall feasts, there are three trumpets, uh, day of atonement, tabernacle. Uh, they have yet to be fulfilled but their fulfillment is associated with the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, remember the early church was a mixed church. It was Jew and Gentile. 
uh, the first thousands and thousands of people saved uh, Pentecost and the weeks that would follow were all Jewish people. So in the day of Pentecost, when we read, you know, 3000 souls were added, those were all Jews. Peter gets up and he preaches a little bit later and, and you have thousands more excluding women and children who are saved. They're all Jews. Then you have some Samaritans who are saved in Acts 8. And then the first Gentiles who come to believe on Jesus, Acts 10. And so in the church, you have Jew and Gentile alike. And so if you grew up Jewish and you celebrated Passover and this and that, and you grew up a Gentile, what was binding? So Paul says, for instance, in the book of Colossians, the second chapter, therefore let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So I think some of the Jewish brethren in the early church, like Paul on one occasion is recorded in Acts, wanted to get to Jerusalem for Passover. Why? Well, number one, the city would be packed with pilgrims. It was an evangelistic opportunity, but it was also a teaching opportunity to say, look, what you've been celebrating for thousands of years was fulfilled in the lamb of God, literally, pictured in your sacrifices who takes away the sin of the world. So they would bring the sheep into the city through the sheep's gate on Sunday, uh, on, uh, what we call Palm Sunday. And the sheep would be observed and inspected throughout the week. And then on Passover, the sleep sheep would be slaughtered. It's not by accident that Jesus comes into the city the same day. Those shepherds and most would argue that those shepherds were in Bethlehem about five miles away. Uh, that's where the Passover sheep were raised, according to Josephus. The Bible doesn't tell us that specifically, but history records it. And so they would march those sheep through the sheep's gate, one of the uh, walls there on the old city. And the, during the week they were inspected. Jesus comes through the city on uh, Palm Sunday as the lamb of God. And all week long he's inspected and so you, you have entire chapters devoted in the gospels to the last week of Christ's life, where his life is carefully examined by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the lawyers, the Herodians, and so forth. And of course they can't find any blemish in him. And then on Passover, he is slaughtered. So you can see how Paul would say, Hey, look, this all pictured Yeshua, Hamasiach, Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, he fulfilled all of these things. So that would be a good opportunity to teach. But are we bound to keep these or are we instructed to keep them? No, they were, they were given to Israel. And now we're in the church where we are one new man, where there, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. And so that's why historically the church doesn't obey those commands because they were unique to Israel. And Paul says here in Colossians, they were mere shadows. So we don't, we don't observe shadows. We observe the substance which is the Lord Jesus Christ. So while we're not bound and commanded to keep them, I think it's very beneficial to study them, especially now the uh, fall feasts that are yet to be fulfilled. Trumpets, day of atonement, tabernacle that will all be fulfilled during the tribulation. And then the millennial kingdom that will come. So um, it's a good question, somewhat related to the, the first one today about the relationship to the believer, to the law. And again, you, you read through the lens of the New Testament and you try to discern, well, if it's a law that was fulfilled in Jesus, 
then it's not something that is still binding on me. So why don't I bring an animal to church on Passover? If I'm really going to celebrate Passover, that's what we're asked to do. We're not just called to have a Seder meal as a lot of Messianic Jews will do today. Because, of course, they have no temple in which to sacrifice. But technically, to obey what God specifically said, you slaughtered an animal, you brought it to the priest at the temple for your family. So we don't, we don't keep that anymore. Why? Because it was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And our next listener writes, I had the opportunity to talk about my faith tonight. After the sermon this week, this was a couple weeks ago, after the sermon this week, my goal was to pray for the conviction of the Holy Spirit in this man's life and that I would be totally dependent on Christ, that, that God must do the work and I must be obedient. This is difficult. I was so uncertain on what I should say. What are some good resources that will help me discern what to say, how to give a defense for the hope in me, and ultimately help others understand God's great love for them? Well, that's a great question. I really appreciate that because it's a question that a lot of Christians aren't even asking anymore in terms of doing personal evangelism because uh, what, what is uh, really needed in the church today is one prayer, but two personal evangelism. The average church member in America has stopped sharing his faith. And we wonder why America is, you know, going down the tubes there's a certain come and see kind of evangelism, but there's a go and tell as well. God calls us to go into all the world. Uh, literally, as you go, we often take Matthew 28, 18 to 20 as a missionary dictate. And it becomes the theme verse for a lot of missionary conferences. But it's more than just a missionary verse. It's given to every believer uh, who names the name of Christ. Uh, go, therefore, is not, okay, go to Africa, go to Europe, go to China, go to, you know. No, literally, it's a participle. As you go, as you are going, make converts, make disciples. The word disciple there is not discipleship. It's synonymous with making converts. We are called to share the gospel. Now, unfortunately, today, a lot of Christians take that verse, Matthew 28, and they say, well, God calls us to make disciples, you know, get two or three people, pour your life into them. And well, he may call us to make disciples. And there are a lot of ways in which that command is carried out. Uh, but, but that's not what the verse is speaking to. The verse is speaking to making converts, uh, preaching the gospel in the parallel account to all of creation. Uh, in Acts 1, a different occasion, uh, at Matthew 28 was given in Galilee. Uh, Acts 1 was given on the Mount of Olives where Jesus ascends into heaven. Wait until the Spirit of God comes so that you can be my witnesses in the city of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. So God calls us to witness for the Lord Jesus, whether I'm gifted in that or not. God calls us to be a witness for him verbally. So your question, how do I do it? Well, number one, we need to be filled with the spirit and we need to be obedient. And I think it's really fascinating to me. And we are in a course on pneumatology right now on Wednesday nights where we are studying the role of the Holy Spirit at different time frames. So we studied his ministry in the Old Testament. Uh, well, first we actually studied who is the Holy Spirit, that he is both a person and he is God equal with the father and the son that God is one who exists in three co-equal co-eternal persons, father, son, spirit. And we looked at that truth. And then we began to look at the ministry of the Holy spirit first in the old Testament. 
And we saw that his ministry was very limited, in fact, to five specific groups of people. And then we began to examine the role of the Holy Spirit from uh, Bethlehem until Pentecost. And during that time frame, how it was unique. And so last week, we just cracked the door on a new role from Pentecost. Actually, we, we started uh, this week, tomorrow, from Pentecost until the rapture of the church. And we will see that the way he functioned in the early church is a little bit different from the way he will function at the end of the age. And then we'll look at his ministry during the tribulation and then finally during the millennial reign of Christ. But I say all that to say that throughout the word of God, there's an association between being filled with the spirit and sharing your faith. And so if someone says, well, I'm a spirit filled Christian and they don't share their faith, they've kind of deluded themselves. Uh, He comes among other things to lift up Jesus, to exalt him. And so when one is sharing their faith, they are potentially a candidate to be filled with the spirit. He, He told them when he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, I'm reading now Luke 24, And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the peace, all the nations. Nations not being, you know, like countries, but all the peoples. It's ethnoi. The, the, all the nations, all the different tribes and tongues of people beginning from Jerusalem. That's where you start. And that's where you kind of start. That's where I start. I start in my own Jerusalem, so to speak. Uh, if, you know, if I'm talking about going to China to win someone to Jesus, but I'm afraid to do it here, then I'm, uh, I've got kind of a distorted view of evangelism. So beginning from Jerusalem, you are my witnesses of these things. And then he says, and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, the Great Commission is given in five different places in the New Testament. And, of course, this Luke 24 passage parallels what is done in Acts 1-8 and that it happened on the same day at the same time frame. Different from the statement that he makes in the upper room where he's speaking prophetically about the coming of the Spirit. But the truth is the same as you do not try to share your faith apart from the Holy Spirit's power. So it's really critically important if you're going to be able to make a defense for the hope that's within you, that you're filled with the spirit. And if the spirit is not filling our heart, then something else is maybe ambition, selfish ambition, maybe uh, materialism, maybe fame, maybe some sin that we are committed. So it's essential that we are filled with the spirit. So I say all that because I know you want a methodology and I'm not afraid to give you one. Because there is a methodology that God uses. There are certain things that have to be presented in any clear gospel presentation at some point in a person's life. Now, it depends where a person is coming from. The way Jesus um, shared the gospel with the woman at the well is different from the way he shared it with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a teacher of the law. In fact, it's articular. You are the teacher of the law. Uh, You are a teacher of teachers. And because he was a teacher of teachers and very familiar with the Tanakh, uh, the expression that Jews refer to as the Old Testament, they didn't call it the Old Testament. They called it the scriptures or the law and the prophets or the law and the Psalm and the prophets or the Tanakh. Tanakh being an acronym for Torah, 
the Nevi'im, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, the writings. And so uh, he knew the Tanakh. And because he knew his Old Testament, Jesus would give him Old Testament examples and illustrations. He assumed that. Whereas the Samaritan woman was largely ignorant of the scriptures. So Jesus dealt with her on a different level. So the way you would share the gospel in terms of a methodology with someone who's never even heard of Adam and Eve, and you say, well, everyone's heard of Adam and Eve. Not anymore. Uh, you know, I meet the, with people almost weekly to share the gospel. I, I love to share the gospel every week with someone. And sometimes God gives me numerous people to share the plan of salvation with. And I, and I can't obviously ask my people to do what I'm not doing myself. I have to lead by example. But when God gives me an opportunity to share the gospel, I'm meeting more and more people, 18 to 20 years old. They don't know anything. Hey, listen, remember last Sunday, if it was an average Sunday in America, 80% of the children, according to Barner Research, 12 and under, weren't in church. And that number has been gradually getting larger and larger with the decades. So now you're seeing the fruit of it when you meet 18, 19, 20-year-olds who you say, well, did Adam eat the fruit? I don't know. I've heard of Adam, but I don't really know much about him. Those are the kinds of responses I'm seeing now with people in that age bracket. And it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. So um, it used to be because America was so Christianized, you could take the four spiritual laws that began God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. John 3, 16, John 10, 10. That's how most gospel presentations were initiated. And why? Because most people knew John 3.16. Most people understood basic truth, not any longer. So I think because of the day that we live in, our approach needs to be a little more holistic, more big picture than it used to be 30 years ago. Now, I wrote a booklet. It's not certainly the only way to share your faith, but I do have the gift of evangelism. And part of my ministry as an evangelist and as a pastor teacher is to equip the saints to do the work of evangelism. That's what God tells us in Ephesians 4, that there are people in the church who are gifted not to do the evangelism for you, but to lead by example and to equip you to do it. So I wrote a little booklet, Would You Like to Have God as Your Friend? And I tell people, look, if you just read it and walked a person through it and occasionally said, does this make sense? Do you have a question? And sometimes Christians are afraid, well, what if you ask me a question? I don't know. Tell them you don't know. Say, you know, I I don't know the answer to that, but I'll find out the answer. I can promise you there's nothing new under the sun. No one is asking a question that hasn't been asked in the last 2000 years. And I would probably dare say that 98% of the questions that unbelievers are going to throw at you are answered in our discovery class where we deal with the 10 most commonly asked questions about Christianity. I'm slowly putting those in booklet form. So I have one, what does, um, uh, how do we know the Bible is true? That's now out and it's available and uh, it's on Amazon. I don't make any money from it. Uh, Amazon, you know, wanted to suggest a price that we sell it at. I sell it at cost. The only one who makes any money, I guess, is Amazon. Uh, but we don't certainly make any. And a new one is getting ready to come out in the next month or so. And uh, it deals with what about people who've never heard the plan of salvation. And so that will be out. And I hope to have all 10 questions answered in, in booklet form. And those are equipping things. So if you don't know the answer, don't know. But here's the thing is the main thing is to present the plan of salvation. So you have to start big picture. 
You can't assume they know anything. Well, God created the world. Why did he create the world? Why did he create man? How do we get into the mess that we're in today? Uh, What are the implications? What's the solution? And how do I make that solution real in my own life? So you're dealing with sin, substitution, simple faith, just the, the core issues of the gospel. I invite people who sometimes want to learn to share their faith to come to meet the pastor because at meet the pastor, I share the plan of salvation and I do big picture because we have people from a wide variety of backgrounds. Some who've grown up in the church, some who've read the Bible cover to cover and some who have never opened the Bible in their life and they know virtually nothing about Christianity. So if someone comes in, they're a Christian, they're equipped They learn how to share their faith. And if someone is a non-Christian, they hear the plan of salvation. So that would be one approach. And if you want to learn how to even, and here's why, let me, let me just back up here a little bit. Most people are like the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter eight. He's pouring over a scroll of scripture written 700 years before Jesus ever steps out of heaven and takes on a human body and is born in Bethlehem. And yet it's like an eyewitness standing at the foot of the cross. Luther is called Isaiah 53, the most important chapter in the Bible. He said it should be written on uh, the finest of parchment and the letters should be etched in gold. Uh, it is a great chapter of scripture and it's a powerful chapter of scripture because it, it's prophetic of all that the Messiah would do and accomplish. And so he's pouring over this portion of scripture and he has no idea really who is the prophet speaking of himself or someone else. And so beginning with that passage, uh, Philip preached Jesus to him. Most people do not become a Christian just by picking up a Gideon's Bible in a hotel and reading it and getting saved. I'm not saying God can't do that. He's big. But usually if he does that, there's been some background behind it. Someone else has planted seeds. Someone else has witnessed. Someone else has given that person some basic information and foundational truths of Christianity. So the eunuch, you know, he's got the scroll Isaiah, which would be a great scroll for him to have purchased because it speaks highly about eunuchs. Um, So maybe that was his motivation for getting it. But in God's providence, it's a great scroll because it deals with uh, what Messiah would do. And so we need to explain to people the plan of salvation and we need to be filled with the spirit when we do it. And that's critical. I hope in this year to offer another course on how to share your faith. Someone says, well, I guess I can't share my faith because I've not had a course. Well, uh, I don't think that's entirely true. Um, You know, they didn't have printed material like we have today where you could walk a person through the key scriptures that give you the plan of salvation. They didn't have anything like that in the first century. But if you were saved, then you knew the gospel. I mean, if you don't know the gospel, then you're not saved. You don't believe something you don't know. You believe something that God has revealed for salvation to become real in your heart. And God has always had his equippers, his leaders in the church. And he speaks of those in Ephesians 4 of of those leaders who are called to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And so people would come to their pastor or come to an evangelist and say, hey, I was sharing this passage from Isaiah. Remember, the New Testament hadn't been written. The early church, they gave the whole plan of salvation from the Old Testament. That's a challenge. Uh, But that's what they did. But the scriptures are all about Jesus. Jesus said, the scriptures speak of me. 
And they said, hey, I ran into this person. They asked me this question. What would you say? So there was that ongoing equipping. The way to learn to swim is not to read a book on swimming, though that doesn't hurt, but you've got to jump in at some point. And the way to learn how to share your faith is to jump in, to start sharing your faith. And as you do that, then you're going to have questions. And hopefully there'll be an equipper in your church who will be able to help you find answers to those questions. When I teach a course on how to give away your faith, the questions that someone who has never done it before and the questions that someone who's been out in the ditches trying to share the plan of salvation are they're totally different. Um, and that's good. That's good. The, the guy who's never done it before needs to learn some basics, but the guy who is doing it, he's got a different set of questions. So, you know, you're listening to me right now and you may just be thinking I'm, I'm talking about someone else. No, if you're listening to my voice, we're talking about what every Christian should do. Every Christian is called to share the plan of salvation. And don't delude yourself into thinking that you are a spirit-filled Christian if you do not attempt to share your faith. If you don't share your faith, then you're disobedient and the spirit has been quenched in your life. That's not to say that he's not working in your heart, but I'm telling you, he's not working nearly as much as he could be working if you become an obedient Christian to share the gospel. And that's the problem in America today. We think the problem is political. It's not political. The, the reason we are going down the tube so fast, so rapidly, is because the church is lukewarm and disobedient. And so you say, well, the Bible says that's going to happen at the end of time. Yes, it does. But you don't have to be a part of that. That's the, that's the promise that Jesus gave to the church at Laodicea. Just because they're lukewarm doesn't mean you have to be lukewarm. You can be obedient even if you're the only obedient Christian. All right, that's a great question. Let's go to the next one. All right, uh, next uh, question comes from Maureen. They write, I'm interested in obtaining a bachelor's degree and would like to make it as biblical as possible. I am a Marine with only a few credit hours. I don't need a degree, but it's been a goal of mine for some time, and I want to learn as much as I can about God's Word and theology. I also would like to be able to work at a church one day. It would probably need to be an online university due to my profession. Would you be able to steer me in the right direction? And can you recommend what I need besides the Bible to study the word better? I know what a concordance is, but uh, need help in getting started. Yeah, I had a very similar question from a guy who just got out of the Navy on Sunday at our new members lunch. And uh, it's, it's similar to the question this Marine is asking. And I admire you for wanting to sharpen your sword and certainly uh, one way to do that is through some formal Bible education. What I'm hearing is that uh, this person has not been to the university. So uh, typically to go to a seminary, a prerequisite is that you have an undergraduate degree. And if you sense that God is calling you into full-time ministry, then you might as well focus that undergraduate degree in a Bible curriculum. Uh, More and more, I think we're going to see uh, universities and certainly seminaries offer the majority of their program online. Uh, One of the fallacies of our day is something called FASTA, which is the federal aid program, and it's just literally made the cost of education astronomical. 
So when that whole system began, and I, I'm aware of it because I had kids who five we put through college, and our goal was to get all five of them through college where they had zero debt. And by the grace and mercy of God, we did that, either through scholarships or, or whatever. And I told my kids, I said, now, if you want to go to graduate school or something, you're going to have to figure that out. I'm a pastor, and I don't make, uh, you know, the kind of salary that a doctor makes. But I hope by God's grace, we can get you through debt free. And so uh, FASTA changed the dynamics of education in America because you fill out these federal forms and basically the government said, whatever money you want, we'll give to you. So what did that do to the cost of education? It just kept going up. So when I had one son who went to um, University of South Carolina, another one that went about six years later and the price had tripled in six years. Why? Because of FASTA. Because the schools figure, well, if the government's going to give the money, we'll just jack the prices up. And so, you know, we talk about national debt, you know, being at $20 trillion. And we don't talk about some of the other debts in the country. Uh, the Social Security lockbox has no lock on it because when you have money taken out of your Social Security check, it's uh, not going into some bank account with your name on it so that they can pay you for it. it. They're just spending it in everyday expenses in the government. There's $100 trillion that's missing from that box. And now there's a trillion dollars in school debt. And that's that's just unbelievable. That's That's a real cost. That's a real expense right now. They can kick the can down the road on Social Security. So... Um, what that has done to education in general in Christian education is not excluded from this. So the cost to go to seminary is huge uh, to go to for me to um, go through my undergraduate degree. I went to Boston College right now. It's forty nine thousand dollars a year, excluding room and board. That's astronomical. Then I went through a four year master's program, a master of theology and then a three year doctoral program. I mean, to do this today, it is so very, it was expensive then, and it's really super expensive now. So what I would encourage you to do is to consider the online program. Uh, Certainly, there are some core courses that you could get without going to some of these uh, seminaries or undergraduate Christian schools that you might be able to get at a local university for much less of the price. So like Liberty University is pretty expensive. They have one of the most extensive online Christian programs that are out there. And it's good. It's a decent program. Um, With that said, you know, you have to take English 101 or Math 101. You can pay the credit hours at Liberty or you could do it at the local university maybe for a fraction of the price and transfer the credit. So I would take my core courses wherever I could as cheap as possible. And then the courses that you need that might be unique to that institution. You obviously do not want to take Old Testament survey at the University of South Carolina, though you can take it through USC. You're going to get taught by a professor who doesn't even believe in the Bible who's going to attack it. It would be much better to take it through a born-again Christian who will help you to understand why the apostate is attacking the Bible and how you respond to his arguments. Um, So Liberty is a good online course. Cedarville is a great course. Um, Cedarville University, they're a great Christian university. 
I used to push Moody, but I'm really concerned about where Moody is going. And I had two Moody students in my office last week, and they were telling me what's going on at Moody. And I thought, man, I'm, we made the right decision to pull out of the Moody Broadcast Network. Some of the things that are going on are just appalling to me, uh, really discouraging. And I hope that's not a new direction that they're headed in. That's not to say that there are not a lot of good people at Moody. There are a lot of good professors there. But the direction is changing. We shouldn't be surprised at that. There are great, I mean, D.L. Moody, who started Moody Bible Institute, is also the guy who started the YMCA. Look at the YMCA today. For the most part, it has very little to do with Christianity. Yet it was the young men's Christian organization. Has very little to do with biblical Christianity. There are some bright and rare exceptions in the country in a few small towns and cities, but it has almost nothing to do with Christianity. It may have more to do in some cities with Buddhism and transcendental meditation than it does with Christianity. I say all that to say that history demonstrates, and the book of Jude warns, as does Second Peter 2, that apostates can enter into uh, the church at any time or into an institution and slowly decay it. And that's what's happening to, and has happened to a lot of institutions. I just did the funeral for a, a brother who graduated from Harvard university, did his undergraduate and graduate work there. And his dear wife gave me uh, a copy of what was written on a 1949 map they have in terms of the purpose of Harvard university and of course, to read that statement, and I always bring this out in the homeschool seminar I have for the last 25 years, that on the original gatepost of Harvard University, it says, for illiterate clergy, for illiterate clergy. That was their initial goal. John Harvard recognized that there would not be enough ministers who would come from England to New England to help plant churches and lead God's people, so that they needed a training ground in which to equip the new generation of Americans to prepare for ministry. And so he donated his personal library and started, started Harvard college later it became Harvard university. And I've had two sons go to Harvard and it has very little to do with Christianity today. Uh, virtually nothing. So um, this is where we're going, but lay that aside, you know, cost, you don't want to come out of seminary owing $50,000 or 75,000 or 100,000. I know guys who are graduating right now with seminary who have $100,000 in graduate debt. That's a lot of money. So you want to try to think through how you can do it as economically as possible, uh, weigh all your options, shop. Uh, you want to obviously go to a conservative Bible-believing school. By conservative, I mean faithful to the Word of God. No compromise whatsoever. And um, certainly speak with your pastor and he can hopefully give you some insights of where you might start and what you might do. But remember, a seminary education in and of itself is not an education. You're going to learn as much by doing as you are absorbing in a classroom. In fact, I could go into virtually any seminary classroom today and just listen to the questions that students ask and tell you a lot where they are in terms of their ministry experience. I had worked with Campus Crusade for Christ for seven and a half years before I went to seminary. And the kind of questions that the guys who would work with navigators or as missionaries or had already been in the pastorate for some years or crusade, the kind of questions they were asking were totally different from the guy who just graduated from college and decided he wanted to go get a seminary degree. 
In fact, I think a good prerequisite to, before you get a formal seminary level education is to be engaged in some kind of ministry because it's going to bring it down to real life and out of the ivory tower. All right, we've got about three minutes left, Pastor, and um, this person writes, your ministry at CBC has completely changed their worldview in the past two years. They believe most of the changes in their life have been good, but as I look at uh, your life and follow you as you follow Christ, I find myself rushing around to get all these great ministry things done with a lack of personal intimacy with friends, family, and even to the point of intimacy with God. The desire of my heart is to be able to teach and preach the Word of God as it ought to be taught, but it seems as if I never have enough time to pour over the Scriptures. Any tips, and what can I do to get more personal in my relationship with God? Well, you have to set priorities. We all do. And so your priority to spend time alone with God really uh, takes you know precedent over everything else. Uh, it's more important than anything else, your relationship with God. You know, often we say God, family, job, ministry, whatever. Um, and that's true. That's not just chatter. That's true. You have to seek first the Lord. He needs to be your highest priority. He needs to be your first love. So, you know, sometimes you have to say no to some things. You can't be everybody's friend. You may want to be, but you can't be everybody. You can't have a close relationship with everybody. But when you think if you're married and you have kids, then you need to think my first and most important disciples are my own family members, my own children. When you think of discipleship, you shouldn't first think the guy down in the office, he may be included, but your first thought if you're married should be your own children your wife, and your kids. In fact, when God looks for uh, qualified leaders in the church, first he looks at the man's family. That's very important because if he can't manage his own house well, Paul says to Timothy, how will he take care of the church of God? If he can't function in a limited capacity, Paul is saying don't expand it. If it doesn't work in his home, don't export what he's doing into the church. You don't want that. So your time with the Lord is of utmost importance and your family and then your ministry goes. Now, I, unfortunately, there are people who worship the family and they put that over any. You can't say you have a ministry to the family if you don't have a ministry to your church, but you include your family in that. You can't say that, well, you know, I'm spending time with my family. That's why I don't have time to have a ministry in the local church. No, you, you, you've, you've communicated dead sterile Christianity to your family if your life is that way. You ought to have a ministry in the church and with other people, but you don't forsake your family in the process. You bring them alongside and they join in with you in that whole great endeavor of making disciples of all nations. Well, another perfectly good hour has left us again. Uh, we, God willing, will be back again next week as we continue to search the scriptures. Thanks for joining us for this hour on The Bible Line. 